Welcome to the Damn Podcast. I am your host, Pepin, and we also have our co-host, or, or other host, whoever you want to call him. His name is Patrick, right? Uh, you're, you're Patrick. Yeah, it hasn't changed. That's me. Yep, and we're doing this remote today. Why? Because, you know, we touched each other too much, and now we have to get some a little bit of separation. I mean, I, mean, I don't mean me and Patrick specifically, but us as a community, as people coming together. And today, you okay, Meter? Yeah, I was just going to be like, and I'm here too. And today, we have a special topic. We're going to talk about something intriguing, something amazing, something fascinating. It's a pat- something that Patrick came up with. And the idea is, you know, what are values and are they objective or subjective? And on today, as our special guest, is Meter from We Need to Talk Podcast, who also is my co-host on We Need to Talk. But today, he's our guest on DAM. So, first of all, uh, how are you doing, Patrick? Great. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I haven't done one of these in a while. It's pretty exciting. And how about you yourself, Meter? Oh, I'm doing awesome. So happy to be here. Real pumped to be on. Damn, I've always wanted to be on, and now is my shot. I got really impressed with you guys. Okay, so all you have to do is just pretend to be pretentious, and we'll fall for it. I'm really good at that. Listen, there's nobody in the world better than at being pretentious than me. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to debate that with you. <laughs> Okay, okay, you win. <laughs> so this topic of whether values are subjective or objective, where does that come exactly from, Patrick? Like, set it up for me a little bit. Okay, so it, it's sort of a difficult question to frame because, yes, we're asking what are values, but it's sort of a, a broader thing than that. And really this started when I took my senior year of college at USM and it carried into grad school it, and this topic kept coming up over and over and over and it's sort of like this postmodernist perspective that everything is subjective and there's no universal truths and I just keep feeling the need to debate this so I thought maybe we can get a couple of other like-minded philosophical people on here and we can talk about this and decide are there universal truths or are all of the values or truths that we have come to know truly subjective? And by the framing of that, it seems like you might believe that uh, values are objective or somewhat objective. Do we define is that correct? So values, I don't think we'd really debate are subjective. But what I'm saying is that are values exactly the same thing as truths or you know, our values moral or, or not, right? So when we take our values, do they come from a place of subjectivity or are they based on some type of objective universal truth that everybody knows, right? Okay, okay. So, so there's kind of two questions there. Number one, where are they? where do they come from? And is that place, say, independent of, say, subjectivity? Is, is it, does it give it right to be implementable into the real world? Uh, Mita, what would your base opinion be or uh, argument? Um, the opposite of whatever yours is. Everything's subjective. Okay, so this is the the point that drives me crazy because I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of things that are subjective. And I do think that interpretations can vary, but I think some interpretations are just wrong. Okay, I'd love an example. So, 
one example that I often go to on this because it's something a lot of people have in the past disagreed about, but I think is a little bit more universal now is whether people who are of the same sex should be allowed to marry, right? This is something that some people see as a universal truth. Everybody should be able to marry, but other people see it as, you know, it shouldn't be allowed. So it can't both be right, right? Like, is there a universal right to marry or is it a value that only some people have and is actually subjective? So, so that is definitely an example of something which is, I mean, that's more of an example of something which is subjective, right? Because what you're saying is there's this idea in right and wrong and it's morphed over time. And you could say that maybe it's morphed into what is the correct position, but what if this is to morph again? What if this is, you know, no ending state. I mean, we're always, you know, cer there's certain moral quandaries that we think we've finished and vanquished. Slavery is wrong, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, and I don't myself see those changing, but using that as an example as some sort of, uh, say, uh, unchanging sense of morality or that uh, morality is not subjective, it, it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive because if it was subjective, then it wouldn't be inherent to change like that. I mean, how can you have more progression if it is objective? So I would say, again, that the value is subjective, but it doesn't mean that it's right. I would argue that the truth is more universal. And so the reason why values evolve is because they must be based on something greater. And as we, as a species, grow and learn more about the universe around us, we tend to gravitate towards things that are more universal. So... Is this saying that we kind of come from nothing and we're learning about the truth? But, but would that imply the truth existed before us and that there's some sort of universal code built into the universe? I think it does imply that. I think that when you look at the animal kingdom, for example, I mean, instinct is a little bit different, I suppose, than morality. But then again, is it? It's, it, I mean, really, we're a critically thinking species, which is what differentiates us from other sentient beings. But because we can critically think, we can also make these sort of subjective values that actually don't align with any sort of instinctual universal truth. Okay. So, I, I'm not 100% sure if I could, say, grasp that some sort of universality would be built into universe. Uh, Meter, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think that morality is derived from, say, human experience, or do you think it's something which is outside of human experience and that we kind of determine? Is it might makes right, or is it – like, how do you think this comes about? Well, I mean, it's – I think it's fairly circumstantial because what's right in one situation might not necessarily be right in another situation as far as morality goes. There are situations where murdering somebody is okay, and there are tons of situations where it's not okay, so – to have one universal rule for anything is just inviting the opportunity for there to be exceptions to said rule. And I think that in and of itself doesn't prove the rule, but rather proves that there are no rules. Okay. It's, if something is an exception to something, so so let's say we have an action, because murder has kind of a implication of, say, wrongfulness in it. So you could say killing, right? So maybe it's right to kill someone. Let's say it's Hitler, right? So most of us say would say that killing Hitler would be the right thing. You know, let's say, make it super easy. It's during the whole Nazi genocide. So killing Hitler in this instance would be the rightful thing because this could topple down, say, the regime. 
you could say it's not murder because there's some sort of justification, so some moral backing behind it. So are you saying that that distinction is a little bit arbitrary, or are you saying that there, you know, there is no inherent distinctions in that way, or there is a you know clear distinction between those two? But you know, what makes that distinction is somewhat, say, subjectively determined. That that distinction is the point. That murder isn't okay, but murdering Hitler is okay, meaning that murder is okay, as long as it's under the perfect situation. But then there's always going to be that gray line. So, like, it, it ends up dictating that there is no line, really, that it's it all comes down to a subjective decision. And a bunch of people agree on that subjective decision, and we consider the majority agreeing on something as being correct. And I don't think that's necessarily true because, as in your own example, over time we have changed the thought of what the majority thinks is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And so from your point of view right now, it seems as though that the the consensus of morality is kind of, say, majority consensus, what people agree to be true. Whereas Patrick is trying to say that maybe there's something beyond that. Like the consensus is from sort of logical, rational basis, whereas with what you're saying, it's more of a popularity contest in a way. Is that is that true or is that characterizing correct meter? Flavor of the month, baby. Okay. Okay. And how would you respond to that exactly, Patrick? I would say that the majority can decide on a value if they want to, but it does not make it moral or correct. So you could use the Salem witch trials as an example of this. If the majority of people decided that it was better for society to burn suspected witches at the stake, then they might feel that that's moral because the witches aren't, right? And and part of that is that they're removing those people from the Mandela of humans. So they're putting them outside of that thing. There's something else. So it's okay now because they're not humans, right? Uh, but that's a justification. It's not an underlying universal moral principle. So I, I wouldn't say that that's correct. Well, it doesn't have to be a universal, you know, principle. So I, I feel like the argument you're making is that people are able to say these aren't humans and that gives them some sort of moral impetus to do what they do. But I feel like they could also have a rationale that they are humans, but these are not the humans we want to live. Like they can respect the humanity, but still deny them the dignity of life. And same with other facets as well. You know, um, certainly there's different aspects of this. So, so like classism, racism, and so on and so forth. But I, I don't think it's necessary that we dehumanize, say, that the groups that we act, say, a more, you know, abhorrently against. I think you can still, say, have their humanity intact and maybe I might exploit that humanity. Maybe that's where part of the suffering that you inflict is really giving you pleasure is in that uh, disruption of humanity. Maybe it's not just the cattle, maybe that they're more than that. And I, I, I don't think the idea that dehumanization is necessary for, say, moral injustice. Yeah, it's not necessary. I'm just saying that that's one example of how the justification can happen. But regardless of whether it's dehumanization or classism or racism, it's some form of hierarchical destruction of equality, right? We're saying that there's cer certain groups that are more important than other groups. And typically that majority group is the one that's going to make that decision about what's the most important. But of course, we see that in many instances that can be dangerous because, again, the values of the majority don't always align with what's actually best for society.
Okay, so this making a case for objective morality, but it's not quite saying that, you know, subjective morality isn't true. Because it's saying, it, you're like, you give him rationale for why morality ought to be objective because of the issues with subjective morality, but it also doesn't argue that subjective morality ought to exist. Or, or uh, it is not the, say, the rule of law. So you're right. I haven't actually made the case yet for why I think it actually is objective, right? And so let me get to that. So when we're born, we're not as babies, like fresh out of the womb. We're not inclined to distrust particular groups of people, right? That's something that happens over time. When we're babies, we basically have a set of instincts that are based on what what we need to do to survive. But many of the things that we grow to value over time that may lead to this sort of behavior that punishes others, those are learned behaviors. So those were not things that were ingrained in us universally. Those were subjective values that came in later. But I think that if if we all grew up without being influenced by these these types of things, then we'd all come to similar conclusions. If so, so if we're all, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to take this out from a bad point of view and just going to main what you just said. But if you all culturally indoctrinate <laughs> the society into believing a certain thing, they will believe that thing. Like, like certainly indoctrination can be effective in work. I mean, we see cults work very well, but you know, like any cult says, this is the cult of, say, goodness and reason and awesomeness. And I don't know if there's much beyond saying that this is good that would justify it as good, because this is, again, the debate. Is there objective morality? And you've seen things which claim to be some sort of objective morality try to enforce themselves, and they always think they're good. You know, the bad guy always thinks they're doing right. So how can we actually know that they're actually doing right when it's sort of this sort of indoctrination method? Because it... So, yeah, I apologize. What I wasn't saying is that we should raise everyone with the same set of values. What I was trying to say is that if, and of course this would never happen, but we're saying if theoretically you grew up on your own devices and were never influenced by anyone, I believe that most humans, or we should say most, quote, rational humans, and that's a whole other definition, but we'll say that the majority of people who grew up under the circumstance of being influenced by no outside critically thinking beings, right, would arrive at similar conclusions about what they ought to do. So would you say that's biologically, say, inherent in humanity then? Yes, because again, the difference between us and other sentient beings is that we can critically think. If we weren't influenced by other people who made us critically think about these subjective issues, then we would be much more instinctual. I vehemently disagree, Pepin. Because I think that if if you're what you're saying if that's true okay, so any everything that you that you believe is subjective to begin with. So if um and so don't take this racist whatever. So if I grow up and all my life Chinese people are really, really mean to me, I'm going to have a bias against Chinese people. Is that right? Is that wrong? Isn't for me to necessarily say. Obviously, 
racism is wrong in and of itself but the idea being that if that's all you know and all you're all you've ever learned you have good reason to believe that if every time you see a red snake a red snake bites you and you are poisoned you don't want to fucking go near red snakes do you so I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's inherent to our biology to be subjective is inherent based on the experiences that we get. More than anything, we are learning machines. So we take and we see patterns and we use those patterns to dictate our future uh, decisions that we make. So I think being subjective and making decisions based on our past experiences and the things that we learn around us, be it through other people or through our own experiences, are exactly what makes us human and, and are exactly how we would act if we weren't acted on by anybody else. That's a really interesting point. So let me follow up on that because when I was in one of my, uh, I was in a multiculturalism class and they essentially made a similar assertion to what you're saying is that everything in, in life is subjective and that the belief in multiculturalism and the practice of it is understanding that values come from culture and so we can't judge an action without the context of its culture um, so i somewhat disagree with that because i think that if we i think for one thing we have to and the specific example that i was disagreeing with someone about in this class was the terror attacks of 9-11 and so what the assertion was and this was the textbook that we were reading in the class is that we should not have any type of preconceived notions about people who come from countries that tend to harbor terrorist states. Right. And my argument is that we should because they have a subjective value, not all of them, because, again, like you said, we don't want to get into being racist. That's not something that's correct. But what we're saying is that this is a part of the world that there are people that want to kill Americans and have done so. So uh, do we not have a right to be skeptical based on the nature of that? That sounds like a lot of extra words to say a racist thing. So again, it's not that everybody from that area wants to kill Americans. It's that you don't know who does or who doesn't because it, it, it you know, there's the, of the people who come from these areas that harbor terrorists, right? Very few of them are actually going to be terrorists. But remember that the people who committed the acts of 9-11 actually were in our country already. So we don't have any way of knowing who they are. So do we not have a right to in some way be skeptical? It's a little bit of a confusing sort, because now we're getting into the perception of say risk. And it kind of goes into what Meter's saying a little bit earlier. So uh, let's say, I mean, this is like the classic example given from psychology. So let's imagine that uh, in your town, uh, all the mailmen, for whatever reason, they will, you know, deliver the mail and then they kick the dog. So they kick any dog they see. And wh who knows why, that, that's just what they do in that town. And then you go to other towns and then... Uh, every time you see, see a mailman, you kind of hate them because they, you know, from your perspective, every mailman you've seen has kicked the dog. So there's a story of stereotyping there, and it's a sort of, uh, say, not exactly warranted, but an understandable rationality that you have there. And you have a perception that this, say, uh, group-based entity has some sort of aspect to them, which may or may not be true of the greater whole. And is it wrong for someone to have that, say, uh, 
greater mentality, I don't think it's wrong, but I think it needs to be open to change and open to further evidence, which kind of goes into what Media was saying about, say, much of morality, much of perception changing with, say, observation and time. And whether that leads to or lends itself to morality being subjective or objective, I, th- I think it kind of goes a little bit sideways to that because it, it, it kind of that, that seems more like morality is somewhat empirical, where maybe you have your certain standards or how you co- cooperate and interact in the world. And maybe you have different ethical framework than other people because maybe your ethical framework is whatever is best for me is what's best for you know the world. You know, my life's about me, and I'm about pursuing my own ends. Or maybe you have some sort of internal code about say honor, like you know if it's good for me, it must be good for other people. You know, I would backstab someone to get ahead, and if someone backstabs me, it's how the world works. You know, I would have done the same thing. So there's different ways of say operating through the world and in I think this way maybe you have some sort of standard that's internal and that standard is somewhat empirical in that maybe you have your context and judgment in the time but that context and judgment can change based off the evidence you're experiencing and if that evidence changes then you might be able to change your judgments about these particular moral quandaries about these you know whatever your observations are okay I like that. That that's a very good point. I, I have one example that I would challenge you to apply that to. Let's say that you have two people from different religions, and each one claims that what they're saying is God's will. You know, which whatever they believe in, right? But the views are opposite. How do you assess those claims? So there's no particular way to you know justify those claims or say obsess. My, my perspective is you have to disregard both because it's a uh, it's appeal to authority. And it's not that appeals to authority can't work, but the appeal has to be somewhat verifiable or somewhat... Because it's like essentially saying, okay, John says this, John says that, and who's John? I don't know. He, he knows everything. Like, it doesn't mean much of anything. And it's just a placeholder for, you know, John is the truth. Truth is, you know, what is true. And therefore, since John said this, John said the truth. Or, you know, this thing is the truth. So A is B, B is C, and A is C. So a basic syllogism. And again, you have to be able to verify the veracity of that intermediary. Because if you can't, then there's no way of actually exacting what is right or wrong or who is right or wrong or if there's a right or wrong. I mean, for instance, let's say we're having a debate about something scientific, let's say physics. And, you know, let's say uh, you say that your God says this. Let's say I say Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson says this. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson is right in this instance because he's a natural physicist, right? He's kind of an authority. You know, you say your God says this, but your God is just a placeholder for an actual name to be put in there. And that you can talk about, say, things that God has said in a certain rationale. So, for instance, in parts of the Bible, Jesus and other people give certain stories and examples of, say, moral ideas, and they give some argumentation. So you can pr- provide that as a justification for you know, your position, but just kind of having a name put in there as a placeholder for justification of what is true or what is moral, I, I don't think is good enough. Unless that person happens to be some sort of moral scholar and... You know, then you can make an, a legit appeal to authority, but that has to have some weight to it. Like you can, you can maybe quote Noam Chomsky or uh, some other, you know, moralist, John Locke, and that there's some weight there. But I, I, the reason why there's weight is because there's argumentation behind them. 
and you could support them with that if you needed to. Okay, that makes sense. I think it's it's just it's hard to make the argument that, say, a physicist is going to be correct over over God, because if you believe in God, then maybe you don't believe in the physicist, or maybe you believe that the physicist was put there by God, right? And so, therefore, it still is God's will. But whatever the case is, it's the same thing when we're talking about cultural values. And so it might not be God that we're talking about, but when somebody is saying that a certain group is correct to believe something or they're justified in doing it based on their culture, it's the same as making an argument about God. So that's why I have a problem with it. And in this example about 9-11, somebody is saying that, okay, you can't judge someone even if they seem to hate Americans because you have to remember that they come from a place where we have repeatedly interfered and there has been a lot of pain caused by that. And so they have a rightful skepticism of us. And so we have to accept that. And even if they might seem hostile, you know, we're sort of the arbiters of that, right? And so that's why it's not okay to do things like, say, extra screening for people that come from certain parts of the country. And what I'm really telling you is that that might be their cultural experience, but we could just easily turn around and say, okay, yes, you have a cultural experience with us interfering in, in the Middle East, but we now have a cultural experience of people from the Middle East attacking us. And so this is really a circular argument. Well, it's not really a circular argument so much as it's, you know, it, it goes both ways is what you're saying. Because if they have a justified reason to be, say, skeptical of us, then, you know, we'd have the opposite, say, ability. And, you know, there's there's no quandary there. It's like if I slight, say, George, and George kind of doesn't like me, and then George slights me, and I don't like George, and maybe it's because I slighted him at first, you know, we, we both have a reason to dislike each other. I mean, it's fine. You know, we, we don't both not have that ability, and, you know, it is what it is. I mean, we're going to drop in there. What's that? Oh, I can. Um, I think you're tearing down your own argument, though, Pat. Was your argument not that if you leave people to their own devices, that they will come to their own moral, the same moral conclusions? And now you're saying that a subjective instance of something happening to them will completely change and should change uh, how they morally look at things. Well, no, I'm simply saying that these changes, okay, they do happen. These people weren't left to their own devices. And that's my point, is that uh, by us interfering in the Middle East, right, that has created a, a generation that's grown up with knowing that Americans are involved in causing whatever troubles going on there. You know, and in what political ramifications may or may not be correct about that, you have people that have been influenced by this thing that's going on. Right. In the event, 9-11, of course, that's influenced the way that we see certain things. Right. But if that stuff never happened, I'm just telling you that if you grew up without any of that influence, you'd come to the same conclusions. And so what I was saying before, Nathan, is there's an easier answer instead of saying, OK, you slighted me, I slighted you or your God believes this. My God believes this. Obviously, we're correct. Right. It would be a lot easier if we had some type of objective value to apply to this right like let's say for example 
causing the least harm. And if we said whatever causes the least harm is going to be correct in this situation, then it doesn't matter if God said it or the physicist said it, you know, or if the mailman said it, because we apply the same principle to it. And that's really where I'm going with this argument. I mean, I, I feel like it's it's a way of solving a problem, but it asks many more questions in return. Because you could say that... The, so, th this is like a very nuanced, say, scenario and situation. And it, it you could just... It's kind of like saying, D don't murder, don't, you know, don't kill, don't rape don't be a bad person, you know, be a good person in general. Certainly that is a good moral thing that I think would work if implemented. But the problem is that the systems are so complex and they're, it's, it's not just one history occurring. It's not just like you can just say, implement something at this very second. The, you know, humanity is spread across a number of age ranges, number of experiences, number of different levels of consciousness. And I, I, I think it makes any moral system, number one, hard to implement, but number two, it makes it kind of impossible to really um, diagnose because the intricacies and the say the, the histories contained within it are often not overlapping. Like, like I don't know if that's being very specific, but it's it's to say that if we could start fresh somehow, like let's say that we could you know say exterminate humanity. This is a terrible idea, but let's say we exterminate humanity. And we have some robots kind of raise us up, up from, like, say, uh, you know, we have these artificial inseminations with embryos and everything. And then robots take care of us until, like, we're some age. And then we can inculcate culture and everything and just kind of have that be a thing. Maybe that's a way of doing it because then we can bypass, see, this horse historical kind of culture aspects or these memories. And just everything's been happening. And, you know, maybe we get taught about history and everything like that. But... It's it's really hard to just have a moral encompassing idea applied to a a group dynamic when that group dynamic is so I want to say diverse, but it, it's 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 happening right now. It has happened for thousands of years. Well, right, because of culturally reinforced biases and because of different interactions that have happened between those cultures over time. But like you said, if none of that stuff existed, then I'm fairly certain we would all agree that the decisions that make the that cause the least harm would be the most moral decisions. I have a question. So, and please just correct me if I'm wrong on this. On this, so the when you're saying that people would should naturally have the same um, morality. It's, there would be an objective morality that people would have if there wasn't history, if there wasn't something being imparted on them. Is that correct? Yes. What corrupts that? What corrupts what? You mean the... What the... corrupts the objective morality that people should have in your eyes? So there's, I guess, twofold to that. There's lack of faith or belief in universal truth. And then the second part of that would be cultural reinforcement. So, okay. so cultural reinforcement is other people dictating onto you things that they believe. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And 
what was the, what was the other part? And a, a lack of faith in the existence of a universal principle. So how does that happen if it's natural to have an objective truth, to have an objective morality? Because I would say that the objective truth is sort of akin to instinct in an animal. But again, that because we have the ability to critically think, we also have the ability to question that. Animals don't really question their instincts, right? They just do them. But we have the ability to question our instincts. So let's say that we start off when we're first born having a certain set of morals, but we don't know their morals yet because we're a baby. But there are certain things that we know we have to do to survive, right? And then as we're raised in society and we see what other people are doing and we hear other people's opinions, then we start to understand life to be a sort of cultural experience which in many ways it is because you did say that people's opinions are subjective. But I'm just telling you that if that stuff didn't exist, I don't think that our views would change. So then that that first part of the corruption, the not outside influence, the internal influence of questioning wouldn't happen? You wouldn't have to question it because that would just be your experience. Okay, so how did we get where we are? If the beginning... It was just an instinctual thing that you just knew this. How did we get to where we were if there weren't other people already with these prejudices in their head? If everyone should have the same moral background. Because we're fallible beings. And what creates the history is there are various things. And if you want to take a religious route with that one, you could say that they're referred to as the seven deadly sins. And so these are the types of behaviors that we try to resist, but sometimes we're not able to. And when these things happen, they sort of create these interactions that over time build this history that corrupts our view. See, I have an issue with this because this is very similar to the Garden of Eden like myth. And I'm not saying that's like a way to discredit it, but I, I don't think humanity has this intrinsic sense of goodness. I think humanity, I, I, don't, I don't think evil is the right word, but we started as animals and very brute and base. So to give an example, uh, this is from another animal kingdom or another type of animal, but uh, lions. So a big interesting thing with lions is that, uh, you know, you have the males who, you know, mate with the females and they have like their, it's, it's not a uh, harem per se, but you kind of kiss it like that like a little bit. But essentially the males mate with their female lions and, you know, they keep other males at bay. Why? Well, because if other males come in there, competing males, what they'll do is that they'll come in and kill all the offspring. And they also kill all the males, but they kill all the offspring, all the males. And then they'll mate with the females because, uh, you know, the way the biology has worked out is the females will start going to heat the moment that all their offspring are killed. And, you know, it, it's a fucked up biological mechanism through which, you know, the species replicates and so on and so forth. And I think humans are kind of the same, except over time we've gained, number one, awareness. Number two, we have inherited logic and language and the logic and language allows us to create and concept certain 
ideas and structures out because I think morality is not something that has existed within us. I think it's something we built over time and that it's kind of been an experiment in progress. And I, I do think that there is an applicability or say a perhaps a potential for some sort of, uh, you could say, moral sort of objective sort of view. But that's only in the sense of it gives each individual some sort of objective criteria through which to live their lives. So that's to say that the sense of ethics for me does not determine how the world is, but rather it determines how I can act in the world while considering myself moral. I want a moral and just system, and the system allows me to know when it's appropriate for me to use or not use force. And I, I think naturally at heart we're, we're, say, lions, essentially. I mean, I'm going a little bit, uh, you know, hyperbolic here because we're definitely not lions in that sense. But, you know, if there are human histories, there's been examples. I mean, it's very, very common for uh, one tribe to invade other tribes or other groups. And what do they do? They go in and they kill the women. No, sorry, they kill all the men, kill all the children, and then they rape the women and, you know, take them home as wives or they just kind of leave them there. And then they go on to the next village and keep doing that and keep doing that. I mean, that, to me, is a very base biological sort of thing. And it's a thing that, for the most part, we've moved beyond as we've constructed more moral thinking and understanding and kind of grained a greater sense of morality. But I don't think that sense was already there. I think that's something that we had to incubate over time. And... I, I certainly would say it's more correct than the previous views, but it also depends on what moral kind of view you stand by. Because if you say might versus right, well, then maybe the old view was better. Because, you know, if might makes right, if I can do this and I can actually enact my will onto, onto reality in this kind of way, okay, maybe that's the best way. But I think we've gone to more sort of a Kantian universal sort of thing where moral standards have to be shared by each individual because, you know, if we expect each individual to follow some moral system, you have to have some sort of system which is compatible, say, at a grand level. And maybe it's just to address the complexity of society. And I'm saying that it's kind of subjective, but you treat it as if as if it's objective because it's mutually beneficial for everyone. But I, I definitely don't think that there's an intrinsic sort of nature there. And I know that's a long little tirade, so whoever wants to take on after this, go ahead. Well, thanks for that perspective. And, you know, honestly, it, it could be. And we're sort of splitting hairs, to be honest, because I think we're talking about the same thing. Well, you're essentially saying that we have subjective morals that we apply in such a way that we're able to live symbiotically with other human beings. But the existence of these sort of similar truths that we apply to a broader universe do not imply universality. They simply imply that we understand solidarity, right? I guess so. Uh, but I think the core difference to the argument, though, would be that you were arguing that there's some sort of intrinsicness to, say, the, the, the ethical state of being, sort of the universal truths. And, you know, for that to be true... I mean, I can't see that as true because I, I see much of our ethical being as being a result of language and language progression over time. A, a weird example is that if you look at, say, ancient texts, they're kind of hard to translate into okay, – let's we'll take the opposite here. If you take current texts, it's very, very hard to translate them into ancient languages. And it's because ancient languages didn't have the same way of expressing and uh, communicating complex thoughts and ideas. They're very – 
rudimentary and you know it's, we could say barbaric but that's not the right term but they're very rudimentary and getting across very complex moral ideas was not even possible and i i, I don't think if somebody was not say inculcated inculcated into society into the culture into like the language gives you the method of thinking about things i don't think that despite humanity having a strong rational ability i don't think that really correlates into ethical behavior i think it correlates into how an average chimpanzee might act i think that your example about the lions is good but i would give you another example so when you look at grizzly bears they are not inclined to attack humans is not their intrinsic nature however they will attack humans if they perceive a threat to their young so when you talk about young and primitive civilizations it's true that they behaved in ways that would not suggest that they have an inherent moral compass but also because of their limited communication that you as you pointed out Perceived threats can be something that can alter someone's behavior. So when you talk about people invading other tribes and killing the children, raping the, or killing the men, raping the women, whatever, that's really just a way of them trying to remove a threat. And a lot of times when you're talking about that, those were religious pilgrimages. You know, one group thinks that they that their view is correct, and so they're trying to eliminate the other, the whatever the, the other tribe is. And you see less of that as time goes on. Obviously, it still happens in the world today, but the more developed the country is, you see less type of insurrection of that nature happening inside the country. And I think, again, that's a construct of when you have a perceived threat to your existence that circumvents any type of moral existence, because at that point, it becomes a matter of personal survival and preservation. Is your argument that grizzly bears don't attack humans because that's the moral thing to do? It's the argument is that it's not their nature. And uh, I, can I make the argument that it's not their nature because if they attack humans, they know they're going to get hunted down by a pack of humans. So it's actually self-preservation in and of itself. And the only time that they'll make an active threat against a human is when the human is actively already threatening them. It's all part of the same reasoning self-preservation at least on a grizzly bears level okay i mean i don't know a lot about grizzly bears other than what i said it's it's just one of those but again in that example if you're saying all right the grizzly bear won't attack because they themselves don't want to be killed they understand that the karmic realities of the universe right so this is the same sort of reason why some people will do things that are outside of what they would instinctually know to be morally good because they feel that they have to for one reason or another, or that they can't in the example of the grizzly bear, which, so if you've ever heard about, um, geez, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's a really famous story about a woman who was murdered in her apartment complex while a whole bunch of people listened to it. The same, uh, Kitty Genovese, that was her name. Um, that her boyfriend came and went three times throughout the night, each time like beating her up and everybody heard it happening, but nobody called the police because they, you know, didn't want to get involved or they assumed there was another side of the story or they didn't want repercussions because the boyfriend was involved in things that were dangerous and people knew about it. Right. So they don't report it, even though they know they should at a self-preservation. But the fact that 
like you know that you should when you hear something like that happen your first instinct is should i do something or you at least ask the question and even if you ultimately don't make the decision it's because you're weighing the karmic realities of what you're going to do and how that's going to affect you I, I have so many things wrong with what you're saying the first being that you think bears care anything about karma uh or that their decision to not act upon something negatively has anything to do with karma a bear will murder the hell out of a fish all day long or a rabbit or a small animal to eat there's are they thinking about the karma there does karma only apply when we're talking well, about humans it was a talking- weird way of saying it but i'm just basically saying cause and effect for the bear it's instinct for a human they understand cause and effect bear doesn't think about it but their instinct definitely tells them if we're going by the line of thought that you said their instinct is telling them they'll get killed if they attack humans yeah and that's a smart that's a smart bear that's why the bear's still alive because it's making it's making those smart decisions but what does that have to do with morality because we're saying in animals it's instinct that they operate on right and i'm saying that if we think of morality as as human instinct like as people who critically think have a certain instinct about morality so what it relates to is that when we're saying that when when we betray what we feel that we ought to do and take a different action typically it's in some context that has to do with self-preservation or cultural reinforcement so again the when the bear is making the decision not to attack the human if your assertion is that they're doing that because they themselves don't want to later be killed then a human might make the same type of rationale like well i should probably do this but if i do it there could be consequences and so maybe i won't No, it does make the argument because what I'm telling you is that most rational people have the first initial thought. They at least ask the question, should I report this or should I take this action, right? Whether you ultimately take the action or not is is subjective, but you at least have the thought if you're a rational person. Like you hear somebody being attacked, you at least have the thought, I should help that person or I should call the police or whatever. Just like, let's say that you work at a bank and you know that a colleague is stealing money, right? But at the same time, maybe you don't report it because that person is a superior and you're not sure if you can prove it. So it's sort of a self-preservation thing. But if you find out somebody's stealing money, it's likely that your first instinct is going to be that that's wrong. What if my instinct is that I don't care? Because it has nothing to do with me either way. Or, or what if your instinct is, let's say that you see somebody, okay, this is going to be a bad example, but let's see that uh, you're in some ancient past and, you know, you live in like a racially divided society and you see this person dying in the street, but this is the person of the other kin, you know, the other tribe. And you're like, okay, good. This is how they deserve to die. I mean, th- th- there's not like an objective, say, sort of criteria. It's, it's a measurement problem. So, you have the stimuli, but what determines how you react to the stimuli is not nothing like a rational basis, because rational basis is the perspective you're coming from. Uh, like it's how you you view it. You know, it, like if you are say walking by Hitler dying, starving of air, you're not going to be like, oh, I got to help him. Let's call nine one one. You're going to be like, yeah, well that's good. 
maybe you have a little empathy. Maybe there's something else going on internally because it's hard to see anybody suffer like that. But still, you know, th- that's a different situation. There's a different context that you kind of see your morality through. And, you know, I, I, if you see everyone as being equals and, you know, everyone is – you know, dignified for humanity, certainly, then you hear anybody in trouble, then that's going to be an issue. But if you don't have that perspective, and it's not clear that perspective ought to be the case, you know, maybe, maybe it should. I think there's great philosophical arguments for that. But I don't think that's the default perspective for humanity or the intrinsic perspective. I don't know if that voice would be there for most people saying, help that person. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But again, I'm I'm skeptical because it's how we measure that. Like, we're going to hear our friends' and family's voices far greater more than other people's. Like, if I hear, like, my girlfriend or my mom or anybody, like, crying out for help, like, that's going to be a way different reaction than if it's just, like, John Doe down the street from California. That's true. I still think, though, that what you're basically saying is that it's a culturally reinforced perspective. If you're saying that you wouldn't rescue Hitler on the side of the street. It's because you're aware of Hitler. Let's say that you'd never met him and you have no idea who he is or what he's done. And you're just some random person and you see him on the side of the street suffering and there's nobody else around to tell you, Hey, that's Hitler, right? Your instinct would still be, maybe I should help him because you're seeing somebody about to die. But the reason that you say, good, that's what he deserves is because you know that he's Hitler, right? Well, it also applies to John Doe. So John, so it also my argument is that it's culturally determined and that it's a, I mean, I, I, culture is kind of the wrong word to use because it makes you think that it's just with culture, but it's also what culture has created, language. Language and logic and, say, th- just our thinking rationale is something which you're using to make these determinations. It's not just, like, culture in the sense of, uh, of you know, you know, where we believe in waving flags and, you know, art and this kind of stuff. I mean, art is certainly part of culture, but, you know, the very fact of language is a creation of culture that gives us the ability to kind of think and kind of see people in these different lenses. And, like, yeah, it's culturally determined, but that gets more argumentation or more credence to the fact that it would be subjective, not not objective. If it's, if I'm arguing it's culturally determined and it seems like it is, then there's not an inherent kind of nature. It's something that's built. And, Certainly, there's those contexts that you can learn, such as this is person's bad, this person good, so on and so forth, which color those things. But I don't think those things would be necessarily uncolored even without that cultural information. Okay, what do you think about it, Meter? Do I, I want to know? Do you think people would? ever have selfish tendencies if there was if they were never exposed to the idea of selfishness do you think that's something that's inherent in creatures in general in humans that's a great question i think i would have to think more about it to really come up with a critical answer for that but my default reaction would be i think we would sometimes because i do think that we're fallible beings but I think we'd also recognize it. And I think that that was, I said this earlier in the podcast as well, that we might take actions that contradict the idea of universal truths. But I think that the fact that we're aware of what we're doing is part of what reinforces that universal existence, right? Because if, if you're selfish, you might not admit it in the moment because 
it, it could be that you were angry or it could be that it's benefiting you and you can't see that. But at some point you recognize that you're being selfish, right? And so that recognition in of itself shows that there was a value behind that decision, even if it wasn't the one that you took. I feel that your baseline is very rosy in all people have good inside them. And I don't, I've struggled with this for a very, very, very long time to right now. I struggle with it, that that's just not true, that there are people out there who do evil things and don't recognize that they're evil. I truly believe Hitler did not think he was doing anything wrong. He thought he was doing the right thing. All evil, evil people believe they are the good guys in their own story. So where does the objectivity come in? Let's say Hitler ended up winning, and that's now the frame of mind that every person has going forward. Is that now the new objective truth, the objective morality? I mean, I think that's a, a completely valid question. So no, it would not be objective reality. It would just be a broader subjectivity. And I have to say, as someone who tends to be more of a cynic myself, unfortunately, I have to agree with you about the way that I've encountered most people. Uh, but also, when I make these arguments, and th this was true in my classes too, I always make sure to say most rational people. Mm -hmm. with huge quotation marks around it because there's always exceptions to everything. And I think you're absolutely correct. There are some people out there who are just evil and who actually do believe that what they're doing is correct and they have no remorse and they believe the version of reality that they are preaching to their followers is actually objective truth. But really it isn't because again, most rational people, when they look at these situations, can come to similar conclusions. And again, I phrase that carefully because interpretation is certainly a valid application of culture, but ultimately interpretations tend to be similar. You see that being true in a lot of the world, world religions as well. So let's get to the comments for a second because there's a couple of little people commenting in the chat here. So we have uh, Anna saying, I see a kitty. Uh, I see the kitty too. Or I saw it. Is, is Kitty back there, Steve? No, he's, he's over, over there, there now. Oh, man, that cat is so cute. I need to say hi to it. I'll come over sometime soon. I mean, once once we can do that, because I, mm -hmm. I want to pet it. That'd be awesome. Uh, I think this is Simon, Simon Taylor. He says, how would whatever causes the least harm be objective if for one party, the option that causes the least harm does not agree with the option that causes the least harm for the opposing party? Okay, I see. So the idea is that let's say that... Uh, what causes the least harm for me, you know, say causes you more harm. So there's a kind of a contradiction there in that you could say balance these two scales. Uh, and okay. he also says uh, globalization will destroy, will always destroy objective morality as humans are a species that air that is intended to operate in smaller tribes, not a large one. Okay. See. So the idea is that we had some sort of objective morality in smaller tribes, but as you get larger and larger, that uh, it, it becomes more and more of an issue. And then uh, he also says rap battle. So, uh, you know, spit some fire meter. Oh, we'll, we'll do, do that, that later. later. Okay. So uh, one of those... And it'll be objectively good. Oh, yes. Now. Objective <laughs> through the standards of art. Now, mm. one of those comments was directed towards Patrick, so I'll give him a quick second to respond. I've actually been asked that exact question before. 
um, almost exactly that same way that he phrased it. One of the people in my class asked me that, like, let's say you have a situation, like he said, where you have two people and the greater benefit, the least harm for one person doesn't agree with the least harm for the second person. So that's difficult. But again, I think that if we go back to saying what most rational people would do is we create a sort of hierarchy of what we consider to be harm, right? And I understand that this invites itself to some form of subjectivity. But again, I think that most rational people here would agree that do not kill, for example, would rank above do not steal. So if you have a situation where someone has to be killed or someone has to be stolen from, not, not that that would happen, but I'm just telling you that if those two things are weighed against each other, then do not kill would be the superior moral decision. So the other person would get stolen from. And it, it doesn't make it right, but it's saying that if you have two situations where something bad is going to happen to one or the other person, then what you would do is you would have to apply this hierarchy of, of you know, what's the greater harm? Obviously, loss of life is the greatest harm of all, because at that point, you can't experience any other harm because you're gone. Again, there's sort of, okay, like you can get circumstantial with this because loss of life could be very advantageous if the person who was lost their life was a serial killer. I mean, I mean, now the, you know, the the harm is kind of safe. Yeah, but we're not talking about society's perception of the harm, right? So in that case, society perceives the harm as not a lot of harm because it's a serial killer. But the, the question in the comment was like, from the perspective of the two people involved. So the person who would be killed obviously would experience the greater harm. But if, if you if you want to look at it from a third party perspective, then look at it in terms of creating laws, right? If you're somebody who has to make a law and you have to decide between something that affects one group versus another group, we can go back to the very beginning and talk about gay marriage here, right? If you have to decide, is it should it be legal or not legal? If you make it illegal, then what you're doing is you're taking away rights from a group of people who want to be able to get married, right? You could argue that you're taking away rights from people who want to practice religion and don't believe that people should be allowed to get married in their church unless they adhere to their beliefs, okay? So those are two situations where it appears that you're taking equal an equal amount of rights away. But then you have to decide, right, who loses greater autonomy in this situation? Because there is a compromise. You can say, all right, let's make a law where anybody's allowed to be married, okay? But at the same time, if you're a, a church, you can you have a right to say, we don't want to have the wedding here, right? And then you can still get married. You just don't have to do it in a church. And I know some people are going to disagree with what I'm saying here, but that's the way that you can achieve both goals without either party losing their rights, right? It doesn't have to be a sort of competition. Well, I, I want to expand this a little bit because, like, like, you introduced that as if there's two groups, but the argument would be that there was only one group to begin with, and then that group got segmented for, say, no purpose or no rationale. You could say it's, a, you know, say, cultural rationale, but, you know, the idea, the default idea should be that one group, all people, say, consenting adults, should be able to enter into contracts that are, say, marital in nature. And that uh, for whatever reason, in this case, it was a cultural reason, a religious reason, this this uh, general, say, ability got constrained to a specific group. And, you know, there may be certain justifications and reasons for that, which, you know, I would say are false. But it, it's, it's more that there's this general thing there and then it got segmented, which is 
more of an application of, say, some sort of universality being taken away, but was this thing subjective to begin with? Did Was it an objective basis, then it got subjectified away, or was it subjective, became objective? Is it like, is morality kind of looking in and expands, or is it something which has been expanded as you're, I feel like you're trying to say it's been its expanse and it's been kind of constrained into a sense of where it shouldn't be? I, I, th- I feel like that's unclear, but... Well, essentially, a summation of what I'm saying is that if, if in this particular example, that by giving rights to everyone to marry, right, you are giving more benefit than you're taking away. Because one of the primary arguments to not allowing it is religious freedom, right? If you're a business owner who is religious and don't believe in gay marriage, then you shouldn't have to be around it or you shouldn't have to do things in service of gay weddings, right? So that's a a debate that happens. And you have to, if you look at a hierarchy here, right? You're saying one, a business owner's right to refuse service is more important than an entire group of people being able to take the same action, right? And if, if you argue in favor of gay marriage being banned, then what you're really saying is that certain people should not be allowed to take an action. Right. You're not really you're not forcing business owners to make cakes. They still have a right to refuse service. And and do I believe that they should be able to do it on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or race or whatever? No, I don't. I do think that that's wrong. But business owners ultimately have a right to operate how they want. And if, if capitalism works the way it ought to, then, you know, that business owner would eventually pay for that decision anyway. I think that's especially more true today. I, I think it became true today, but I think in the past it created very, very bad situations for people who are in a marginalized situation. And I think you're coming from a privileged situation. So to talk about a marginalized people and say that they should be, you should be allowed to refuse service to somebody who's marginalized or in the minority, especially when historically it has resulted in not just the loss of their ability to have that one service that may be a more minor service, not a life preserving service. Um, that they have experienced times when there has been a life-preserving service that have been taken away from them. I think it's a very slippery slope to start passing laws that say you're allowed to not serve people based on specific things of that nature. I don't think the laws should really get involved at all, if if necessary, if unless necessary, to preserve no, you're, you're You're right, actually, and I do take a libertarian stance on that. I think laws should only be there to protect the liberty and autonomy of the citizens of a country and you know that's why gay marriage should be allowed first of all but um, we do have laws thankfully that make it so business owners can't refuse service for those reasons Um, and so let me clarify i think the only time when it's acceptable to say this is if you're in a church right if you believe a certain thing and that that thing doesn't have to be right because again uh, people have their own interpretations of culture, but if if you're going to church to practice a specific belief, um, then you also have a right to be able to practice that belief. You can't go into public and push that belief on other people, which is where it comes in like there's a difference between the cake maker and the preacher. Because if you're the cake maker, there's actually a law that says that if you are a profiting business that is out in the public, that you can't make those sort of di- discretionary choices. Yeah, but if you're running an institution that has a specific belief, then you should absolutely be able to say, you know what, we respect your right to get married, but we just don't want to do it here, right? 
So let's start wrapping this up here. Uh, if anyone has any other sub subjects we could maybe talk about in the next episode, feel free to uh, leave them in the comments right now and we'll take suggestions. Uh, who knows? Maybe we can talk about dicks again. That might be fun. All right. I'm a dick specialist. Wait, no, you cut, cut that, cut that. <laughs> but uh, let's just uh, kind of end this with just a quick, say, one minute view of what our view about morality is. So uh, we have me to start first. Uh, morality in in the topic that we've been talking about today is completely comes down to a subjective basis. I think that there is an argument to be made for. Uh, there being some reason to have universal agreement on things that are moral. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of people have a guide inside them that tells them what is and isn't moral, but I don't think that there is a universal, there's an argument to be made for universal, everybody follows the same morality, because I think life in and of itself is subjective, not objective. So because of that, all things contained within life, including morality, are in and of themselves subjective. Okay. Uh, to give my thought, I would say, see, I'm not as, say, um, stringent as meter because I think there is an objective component to morality. So I, what my belief is that you can have moral claims, which can be true or false, and that they can be, say, based off, say, science, let's say, and empiricism. Because I, I, I think... Science and reality do exist. I do think that they have, say, a, a substantial basis that is provable and that you can make moral claims based off those provable things. So, for instance, in regard to consent, uh, we, we know that the human brain matures very slowly and that uh, little kids don't have an ability to consent to certain acts. Which is why, you know, number one, it's not okay to have sex with them. No, you know, not that you would anyway, but... Uh, why it's okay not to have sex with them, why it's okay not to they, let them take drugs and do all these different things because they don't have the ability to understand the, you know, say the objective implications of those things. So I think there are certain moral things that we can determine through, say, biological study, through empirical study, through, say, reasoning and rationale. Um, you, you know, you can't make it immoral to be in two places at the same time because you know, number one, you can't do that. And you can't make it immoral to not stay in two places at the same time because you can't do that either. So it, it, you, you want to have a sense of morality, which is based in reason and science and you know, rationality, you know, as far as it can be. But at the same time, there's certain standards and things which is going to be dependent upon the internal observer and what they want. And I think morality, for the most part, is a standard that we want to see across people because we want to, say achieve certain things in our lives. And the only way to do that is to try to imbue the standard. And it doesn't really so much determine what is right or what's wrong, but rather it gives us the ability to act against, penalize, you know, uh, incarcerate, whatever you want to say, act against other people to enforce that standard. So ethics does not give me the, and it makes me feel good because I'm a nice person, I guess, you know, you want to say that. But what it does so more for me is if someone acts without that standard and I can somehow justify the standard to be somewhat, say, good or better than just, say, brute force, then I can force a standard on other people. If other people are stealing, you know, I can, say, act against this person to penalize them in a way that reduces that which is better for me and 
there's a collective of people who agree that that's also better for them as well. So that's that's kind of the cooperative society, the kind of general ethos. So that, that that's my view. A little bit longer than I intended, but uh, Patrick. That's all right. So my view is kind of the opposite of meters. But actually, I just want to clarify. I do agree with a lot of what you said. I think that my view is ultimately utopian, probably would never happen. And so what the reality of the universe is, is actually close to what meter is saying. So I do acknowledge that that's the reality, right? But I think that underneath all of that reality, there is a an inherent morality that each of us understand when we start our lives. And I think that over time that gets you might say corrupted, but you might just simply say changed, you know, because again, the way that people interpret things, they believe to be true. And we don't really determine right and wrong, right? We just see cause and effect. Uh, but to summarize, what I think is that there are universal truths and that sometimes we go against them, but whether we do or we don't, they and they actually exist. And if we weren't influenced by outside factors, then most rational people would come to the same conclusions. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, definitely leave any comments in the comment description below. Leave a like on the video. And also, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, definitely, you know, say, hey, guys, talk about this. Uh, today we had Meter on from the podcast We Need to Talk. Uh, I'm also on that podcast too, so I'm not going to show it myself. I'm going to leave that to Meter. Meter, what is Go We Need to Talk? Uh, you speak Japanese? Very fluently. Holy shit, that's sexy. I I know. I've been working really hard on being sexy for you. Oh, man. How about the thong? Did you get the thong? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, have, have you worn it yet? Not yet. I'm saving it for, so it doesn't get all stinky. Well, you, you wouldn't wash it? Nope. It's bare skin. You can only wear it once, and then it's going to be stinky. Oh, bare skin. That's, that's interesting. So we were talking about bears earlier, and I I think that... This is barely going to survive post here. So, hey, let's just end it here.